Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Jorge, good to see you. Good to see you. Likewise, yes. I'm glad we could pull this together. We were at an event uh, hosted by Scott Atlas, yes. who's, who's a fantastic guy in in Florida, and we, we re-sparked a conversation we've been having over the years. Exactly. So yes. I wanted to have you on, um, get an update uh, on your, your home country of Venezuela, um, but also talk about um, cryptocurrency and how do we pl- protect political dissidents and authoritarian governments that want to control our financial futures and all that stuff. Yes. But uh, give people a background because you, you just reminded me the first time we, we had a public conversation was in 2017. You were still a student. Um, but I don't think we've ever done a show together. So why don't you give people a little bit of background of you know where you're from, how you became a political activist. Yes, exactly. Basically, I remember our first uh, public talk was in New York. Uh, we actually went, we both went to this event in NYU. I was giving a speech. I was interviewed by Stossel, and you were also uh, giving a speech. And I will tie this to my background then. Uh, at the time, I was a student, and basically I was a student who had to move from Venezuela, left Venezuela, uh, because I was an activist. And at the time, I thought, okay, I will move to the U.S., I will start in the U.S., and I will come back to Venezuela. But while I was in the U.S., there was this massive wave of protest in Venezuela. And I remember thinking to myself, how can I help? How can I help the people who are on the ground risking their life uh, for the things that we all want, which is freedom? Basically, my way to help was to become a bridge between the people in Venezuela and the international community. And particularly, I started getting supported by all these human rights activists, human rights uh, journalists, people who love freedom. And one of them was people, people like you. So I started speaking at events, at think tanks. I started writing for media, all these things, just to raise awareness about the situation in Venezuela and to raise awareness on how can they support uh, our cause. And very importantly, also what things they need to do in their countries to not repeat the same experience that we, we left, we, we, ha- we have uh, in Venezuela. Just to give you a background, uh, I'm an activist. Uh, I was, since 15 years old, always involved in, in politics, in activism, because I saw how in my country, a supposedly rich country, how people were literally eating from the garbage, how people were starving, how people were being put in prison only because they were writing op-eds about freedom, or how artists were being put in prison, artists, activists, academics, so to me, that was uh, intolerable, unacceptable, and I wanted to do something. Uh, as of now, I'm the director of Alumni for Liberty, which is the alumni organization of Students for Liberty. Uh, we have 10,000 members in 139 countries. And what we try to do is we try to create leadership pathways for young people to become leaders of freedom, leaders in academia, in policy, in journalism. And why I'm doing this? I'm doing this because I realized that in order to free Venezuela, I also had to contribute internationally. This is my way to contribute. I think that we need to train and we need to support young people all over the world uh, because we're living in a new paradigm in which you have a series of autocracies working together to undermine freedom, not only in their countries, but internationally. Uh, You have Iran, you have China, you have Russia, you have Venezuela cooperating. And what we need to do then also cooperate ourselves, 
liberty activists from Venezuela to the US to Canada to Europe. We need to work together. And I'm trying to develop this space of cooperation uh, at Alumni for Liberty. Uh, beyond this, uh, I'm a researcher at a university called ESE, ESE Business School in Spain, which is a leading university in Spain. And I write about the intersection between uh, foreign policy and economics, uh, about sanctions, for instance, and about uh, something that I have been working a lot and you, were, you, went, you wanted to ask me about it, is anti-money laundering regulations, all these things. And I have published at places like the Brookings Institutions, National Review, Foreign Policy, uh, all these places about uh, these issues. So when we we've, were first talking and, and we had several conversations since then, Venezuela and the collapse of, of the socialist experiment and Nicolas Maduro's violent attempts to clamp down political dissent. This was, this was on the front page of the New York Times, 2017, 2018. And, and I've noticed over the years that nothing has gotten better in Venezuela. If anything, it's worse because it's the same devastating policies, the same devastating starvation, um, particularly amongst children, except that it's gone on now for, um, you know, five, six, seven, eight years. Yes. Uh, but I don't read about it anymore. Yeah. So what is what is happening in Venezuela? Have have things gotten better? Have they gotten worse? Uh, because it, it seemed unsustainable at the time because yeah. people were people were fleeing across the border if 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 they were allowed to. Mm -hmm. And people were picking out of the garbage. They were eating their pets. It, like it was, it was a nightmare, um, apocalypse kind of vibe to it. Um, but as far as I know, nothing's changed. It is a nightmare uh, in the sense that the whole country that I used to know when I was a kid, uh, a normal country, we were not the best country nor the worst country. We always could have done better, but it was a normal country. Uh, that's now gone. Like I remember... After we spoke, for example, I took the decision to come back to Venezuela and I actually came back for Venezuela for over a year uh, before the pandemic and during the pandemic. And I left after the pandemic, so over a year. And I realized that it was an apocalyptic. I think you use the right term uh, because imagine people. First of all, the most shocking thing to me was that to see how all families were broken. Because out of 28 million people, 7 million people have left the country. So all families were broken in some sense. Uh, even my family and most of my uncles and parents, everybody's living in a different place. That was the first thing. The second thing was the amount of misery, like deep levels of poverty. We are not talking about poverty of not being able to buy um, a new car or not being able to buy the best food. No, we are talking about not being able to have even the basic thing in your refrigerator, not being able to buy milk, not being able to buy eggs, uh, literally surviving out of bread in the best cases. Uh, just to give you an example, most people in Venezuela earn less than 100 or $200 per month. And doing groceries in Venezuela is more expensive than doing it in Madrid, which is where I live. Because of course, uh, the socialists, they destroy all the national production. So the situation is horrible, it's extremely bad, but as you mentioned, it's not being as discussed. And there are several reasons. First, it's natural that there is a fatigue of like international news. And international news can be defended for a few months, but eventually people move on, especially when there are 
problems in their countries. If somebody sees a problem in their country, they will less focus on another country. The second one, and I think the most dangerous one, is that Venezuela, we're talking less about Venezuela, but because many parts of the world, there are problems uh, right now. In 2017, Venezuela was a big issue. Now we have a Ukraine, and uh, now we have the, 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 whole, the whole issue between Israel and Palestine. Now we have the whole issue in Africa. There are coup d'etats in all Africa. And, and we have, again, all these problems with democracy. And uh, we are seeing a recession, a democratic recession. So I think there is partially this. And the third factor is that I think also the leadership in Venezuela has not been able to communicate effectively things that we have to do to bring democracy to Venezuela. So if people see the same story again and again, and they don't see solution. And when I say people, I say regular people and policymakers, people at international institutions. What they tell us, for example, is that they know the problems of Venezuela, but can, how can, what can we do about them? How can we have a better foreign policy about them? So I think a combination of all these factors is what makes Venezuela a more difficult, uh, a more less talk about story. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today. Just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love liberty and look cool. I, I could see um, particularly the the pandemic, which which was all consuming in the media for almost three years, starting in 2020. I could see how that would push it off the headlines. But I, I think it happened before that. And one of my theories was that the the narrative, uh, particularly with Maduro and his chief economic advisors, explicitly calling this a socialist experiment, mm -hmm. their word, not ours. Um, and it, it, it undermined um, a political movement, not just in the US, but all across the world of, of new so-called democratic socialism. Right. And they, they couldn't actually say that's not socialism because the guys doing it were actual socialists saying in, in quite Marxist terms, this mm -hmm. is what we're doing and watching it create just devastating malnutrition amongst children. Um, so I, my, my theory was it didn't, it didn't fit a, a narrative that, that was building elsewhere, but, but I did, I, I told you this, I Googled um, malnutrition in Venezuela, starvation in Venezuela, and I found an NPR piece talking um, essentially about institutional malnutrition where children are going their entire developmental years without anything but bread, mm -hmm. which, which essentially destroys their lives. And their brain yeah. and everything, yes. Forever. So it's, um, some people are maybe starting to talk about it again, but I can only imagine, I've, I've spent a lot of the pandemic talking about the humanitarian impact yeah. of lockdowns. Yes. Um, I think it was bad in the U.S., but it was nothing in the U.S. compared to countries like Venezuela, yes. very much at the margin, mm -hmm. where not being allowed to work, not being allowed to go outside would be the difference between life and death. So I, I would imagine things are worse, not better. Yes, um, basically about the fact that, this, that the Venezuelan narrative undermine a ton of the left, that's partially, that's, that's totally correct. Uh, for example, 
I wrote a paper at the Institute of Economic Affairs. And the way I began the paper was mentioning how people like Jeremy Corbyn or how people like Bernie Sanders were praising uh, the Chavez uh, experiment. Uh, basically, they were saying that this was a new way of having a representative, truly representative democracy. Uh, so it was very inconvenient uh, for many of them to then admit that this was a socialistic mistake. Something that, for example, I always try to emphasize is that the cause of the collapse in Venezuela was not sanctions, was not the U.S., was not the decline of oil prices, what was the socialist administration of Hugo Chavez and then Nicolás Maduro. And we also need to be clear in which specific policies then. So that way, these policies are not repeated. Price caps, expropriations, currency controls, direct quotas for businesses, to the point in which one time the government in 2013 basically told all businesses what were the profit margins that they had to use. And profit margins were, of course, not big enough for businesses to survive. So the whole inventory was destroyed. And I saw this in real life. And why this is extremely dangerous is because many of these ideas continue to be present in the public discourse. For example, in the case of the US, inflation had been picking up for the past couple of years. And I remember just looking at the comments from people like Elizabeth Warren, the way she said that inflation was the result of greedy businessmen, greedy corporations. And that's extremely dangerous. Because from this idea, from this economic belief, then a lot of bad policies result from it. Because if you think that inflation is not a monetary phenomenon, if you don't think inflation is an issue with government spending, but you think it's greed, then of course they will try to advocate for policies like price controls. They will try to advocate for policies like direct government intervention into the price mechanisms. And when that happens, then it's when you start seeing a scarcity, you start seeing many problems that actually makes inflation even worse. And people start demanding even more regulation and you create, uh, you enter a vicious cycle uh, in the economy. So I think that's also why it's extremely important for us to explain uh, the Venezuelan case study in a, I think, academically rigorous uh, mm -hmm. way. So that the way these policies are not repeated, uh, such as this one, because I don't want to see any other country happening to what Venezuela is going through. Something that many people, for example, don't realize is that Venezuela used to be a rich and democratic country. Venezuela used to be a top 20 economy in terms of GDP per capita. In fact, from the, 19, from the 1920 to the 1980s, Venezuela was the fastest growing economy in the world, top 20 economy in the world. It had the highest saving rates in Latin America. It had the highest GDP per capita in Latin America by far, highest social mobility in Latin America. Uh, so in all terms, Venezuela was doing excellent and was uh, an example on development. And then, that was in the 1980s, one generation after that, we were the example of the total opposite. Uh, so maybe it's a cliche for some people, but it's important to say that all countries can fail and we need to protect our institutions every day. And by institutions, I mean formal institutions like laws and regulation, and I mean informal institutions like the type of ideas that people have in their head about the role of government, around the role of businesses, uh, all these things. So you mentioned Elizabeth Warren, and, and I think it's worth drilling down a little bit more on her gross financial illiteracy um, because it very much applies to um, the attempt to squash cryptocurrency and 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 uh, sort I'll use the word nationalize the banking system but that's that probably 
doesn't really explain how um, catastrophic what she wants to do would be. But but she and President Biden sort of comically have been complaining about shrink shrinkflation. Mm-hmm. Um, the president's very worried that there's not as many Doritos in a bag of chips as there used to be, um, seemingly unaware of the fact that, that they did this by spending trillions of dollars they don't have. And, and Elizabeth Warren has yet to explain to us why it is that corporations are gouging us now. Why, why did they wait? Why, why weren't right. they doing this before? Um, and, and I think, obviously, they, they, if, if they're financially literate, they want to deflect from the fact that they have caused the inflation. But I think it's also why um, she, in particular, have have declared a war on on cryptocurrency because because alternative means of of protecting your wealth, alternative means of of uh, transferring money, very much undermines the attempts to centralize the money system and and control it from top to bottom. Right. I mean, Elizabeth Warren again; she's extremely wrong on the issue of inflation. And at the same time, she's extremely wrong on the issue of Bitcoin. As you mentioned, Elizabeth Warren is proposing a draconian kind of a policy in terms of the crypto assets and Bitcoin in particular. And this is something that I have been particularly working on uh, because uh, Bitcoin for people like us, for activists, is not a speculative uh, tool. It's not an investment mechanism. It's a human rights tool. Something that I have been trying to explain to policymakers is that in places like Venezuela, the only way we can operate is with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is our way to have direct ways to support activists in Venezuela, in the Middle East, and in Africa. And what Elizabeth Warren wants to do with her proposal in the Senate is basically target or to label everybody who uses Bitcoin as a potential criminal or as a potential money launderer or as a potential person involved in illicit kind of activities. And this is extremely dangerous because then what it will create is a framework in which all of our, the people like us that we use Bitcoin for human rights purposes will be immediately criminalized, not only by developed countries, because financial regulations created by the U.S. are picked up by all G7 countries, but also developing countries that then use what the U.S. does and they implement it because the U.S. produce gold standards uh, in terms of financial policy and all policies, honestly. So because of that, uh, we went two weeks ago, we were here in Washington, and we basically met with, I think, 18 offices in the Senate just to talk to them about the situation and explain to them the situation. We had the first roundtable organized, we we co-organized it at the State Department on this issue. Uh, We met at the Treasury Department on this issue and basically to explain to them several things. The first one is this one about Bitcoin. The second one, is uh, ways that authoritarian regimes use the financial system to attack uh, dissidents. Um, just, to, just to explain to you, the, the, the international financial system, as, because it's very interconnected, uh, authoritarian regimes are finding ways to attack their dissidents even if they are in exile, uh, because they, are, they have ways to send signals that these people are potential uh, criminals or money launderers, stuff like this. They do it through different ways. First of all is they do propaganda. So if they create a ton of propaganda against a person, this person then has difficulties opening bank accounts because of the compliance system. Uh, there are this compliance, pick up this information, and basically put this person as a high risk uh, person. 
The second one is something called the travel rule in financial system, uh, which is basically that financial institutions, they can send signals to each other, basically requesting information or providing information about clients. And one of the problems is that the financial institution, the financial system, basically consider all financial institutions as credible source of information. But if a bank is owned or partially owned by the Venezuelan regime or another regime, then what happens is that these banks are actually arms of authoritarian uh, countries. So because of this, many activists all over the world are losing their bank accounts or their bank accounts are being weaponized. And this is something that we want to, we want to remedy and we want to counteract. The other thing that is happening, and I was explained to them, is the issue of immigrants losing bank accounts because of harmful over financial over-regulations. Uh, because of all these anti-money laundering regulations, uh, excessive, which again, they have good intentions, but they're delivering horrible results, like many regulations. What is happening is that many immigrants who come from high-risk high places, like Venezuela, when they move to Italy, when they move to Spain or these places, they cannot open bank accounts because they come again they, their risk profile is too high for banks to accept them the problem is that then these people are economically excluded and these people cannot become productive members of society they cannot become people who who contribute to the system who then rent apartments because how can a person without a bank account rent an apartment get a job or even buy groceries uh, they cannot uh, so we are also having meetings with all these institutions like the treasury like the state department like the senate uh, because we want remedies to this situation. We want policy solutions to this situation. Um, in the case of immigrants, uh, my policy proposal was pick up my members of parliament, and over 20 members of parliament uh, formally supported my proposal. Uh, so right now my proposal is being debated uh, in the Council of Europe uh, in the respective uh, committees. Uh, but basically these are ways, tangible ways, in which we can advance freedom. Uh, this is not theory. This is ways that we can provide people tools so that they can become, in the case of immigrants, productive members of society, and in the case of activists, so that we can actually support their work. What I told the State Department, and coming back to the issue of Bitcoin, is that all their efforts to promote democracy, all their efforts to promote democracy in places like Venezuela, will be undermined uh, if uh, people don't have financial access. Because if activists in places like Venezuela, they cannot open bank accounts and they cannot use Bitcoin, how can they operate? In fact, how can they live? They cannot live. Uh, so that's something that I have been working on. And specifically what I was telling people in the Senate is that uh, Elizabeth Warren's idea uh, is basically some, an idea that will destroy human rights activists uh, all over the place. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. So the... The, in Venezuela, for instance, um, just going back to the human rights, um, humanitarian efforts to keep people from starving to death, um, there's there's a whole issue of uh, one of the things that keeps Venezuelans alive is remittant, remittances mm -hmm. from other countries, which is done through the banking system. It's it's um, it can be quite expensive. Um, Bitcoin is a 
seamless, almost costless way to do that same thing so that your uncle who escaped Venezuela has a job in Colombia, he can send you a little bit of money for, yeah. for groceries. And in that sense, it's, a, it's very much a elites versus the people that are struggling to survive. It's yes. not even, it's, this is not political activism. This is just an attempt not to starve to death. Literally, like this is Bitcoin in, the, in these places has become the only source for people to literally survive. Um, because as you mentioned, to send remittances uh, back to places like Venezuela is extremely costly, it's extremely difficult. But Bitcoin offers a solution uh, to this. Uh, so I think we need to work on two fronts. The first front is, as I mentioned to you, to protect Bitcoin from harmful financial regulations. So this is a work that we have to do in Europe, we have to do in the US, because all financial regulations are created by developed countries and particularly by an institution called the Financial Action Task Force, which is led by the G7. So they're the ones who create the gold standards uh, on, on terms of financial regulation. So that's one thing. And the second thing we have to do is that we need to teach more people how to use Bitcoin. Because of course, many, many immigrants, they don't know how to use it. Uh, they don't know how to open a wallet. Uh, they don't know anything about it. Uh, so I think we need to also pay attention and we need to do more trainings and we need to gather these people. Something that, for example, I have been thinking about is to organize uh, get-togethers or retreats in which we bring together high-level activists, people from the Bitcoin community, and policymakers. And all of us share experiences and all of us learn from each other. And I think these are communities that we need to talk to. For example, immigrants. As you mentioned, if, if it was not because of Bitcoin, it's extremely expensive to send remittances, almost impossible. And because of all these anti-money laundering regulations, People who are constantly doing transactions in difficult places are debanked or are extremely risky for financial institutions. So financial institutions tend to prohibit uh, kind of this type of transactions. And, um, and this happens in places like Venezuela, but this was, for example, very visible in the case of Ukraine. In the case of Ukraine, at the especially at the beginning of the war, all people that were using traditional financial institutions and services, they were unable to provide humanitarian aid fast. But the people who use Bitcoin and knew how to use Bitcoin, they were able to do so. Uh, so in conflict zones, in humanitarian crises, in basic, basically all over the world, I think Bitcoin has become a most powerful tool uh, that we have. I think framing it as a humanitarian issue is, is quite powerful and... And, and, I, and, and I, I like that idea, and if, if I can support you in any way as you bring those people together, because, because I think, you know, we, we, Elizabeth Warren gets away with um, a cheap caricature that, mm -hmm. that says that, that Bitcoin is about, is about terrorism or people avoiding um, uh, the, the government. And, and I, I, I want to go back to the debanking issue because mm -hmm. this, this, is, this is the other half of the coin. Um, without these decentralized crypto-based currencies, we're all trapped in a centralized banking system. Mm -hmm. even, even if it's a relatively free banking system, it's still central top-down. Um, but I would assume by definition, the more authoritarian the country, the more it controls the banking system. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to political dissidents using uh, stuck in a banking system, they will be the first to be debanked mm -hmm. by the dictator of the day. And yes, and something that is extremely terrifying is that 
authoritarian countries not only have financial power in the countries, they have international financial power because of all these, because bank is extremely interconnected. So if they want to, they can send signal to American institutions and they can get all the financial data of anybody they want. To. And this includes American citizens. Uh, this includes people, again, that have nothing to do because the only thing these countries have to do is to find a financial institution to request this information for money laundering purposes. And in, for example, in places like Venezuela, maybe the Venezuelan regime is already too too radical. So, But they can find proxy countries, third countries to do this and to help them with the favor uh, mm -hmm. to do this. And as you mentioned, dissidents are the first one that will be attacked. And in fact, something that was even scary is to see how even in developed countries, this is not starting to happen, but there are cases. Like, for example, these guys in Canada, the truckers, yeah. that Justin Trudeau richly, literally threatened them to close their bank accounts. And Canada is, what, one of the most democratic countries. He, he did. He did. He did. It, it was a done he deal. Can. That's yeah. That's, that should have been the wake-up call. And, and you, you talk about the interconnectedness of of these international banking regulatory bureaucracies mm. and central banks, um, Canada should have been the wake-up call. Yes. Because this is not just Nicolas Maduro going after the people of Venezuela. This is a supposedly uh, mature and robust democracy yes. um, just taking people's stuff because they spoke up against the president. Yes, and again, uh, the, all the incentives are created to allow this situation. Uh, as I mentioned to you, there is mechanisms for interbanking connection. And there is specifically a ton of laws related to something called uh, KYC, Know Your Customer Regulations, which again are well-intentioned regulations because what they tell us, it tells banks that they need to know who their customers are. The problem is that if you are a victim of propaganda, if, and if you are called a criminal or you are called a traitor to your state or something like this, then many activists will then become immediately uh, debank. And right now, this is extremely important because in all developed countries, I mean, the US and Europe, this, they are undergoing all this financial reform. It's a period of extreme financial reform. And it's interesting also in the debate about CBDCs, uh, centrally backed uh, cryptocurrencies. And, uh, and yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's extremely interesting. I think we need to raise more awareness of the situation. Yeah. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Key Beyond Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. Yeah. So um, the, the solution, you're, you're fighting for, um, I assume, deregulation and preventing the, the overregulation of cryptocurrency. But it's really, as best you can, keeping centralized control out of the system is that is is that a realistic goal i mean what we need to do i believe is that first we need to address understand what is the problem which is something that we have been going is we need to understand specifically what are the areas within the law that have to be amended and that have to be reformed and 
clearly we will not achieve a totally change in the in the financial system but we can create provisions to protect people how can we do this um, first i think that we need to really identify all the unintended consequences of all these anti-money laundering regulations because in the case of bitcoin for instance all money laundering and all these issues are not going through bitcoin they're going through traditional financial institutions how is the way that countries like venezuela circumvent sanctions they not do it through bitcoin no no they do it through traditional financial institutions through third countries through other authoritarian or quasi-authoritarian kind of our regimes uh, so we need to make that clear so that way uh, we don't create laws that are trying to tackle something that there is nothing uh, in there so specifically what we are pushing for uh, first uh, in europe for example my proposal the one that was picked up by members of parliament was to reform anti-money laundering regulations in ways that uh, right to banking to all people is not compromised so we need to reform anti-money laundering regulations so that way People that are not come from high-risk countries are automatically uh, debanked. So there has to be a burden of proof. So there have to be protection uh, for these people. And there have to be ways to, again, to systematically mitigate uh, these things. The other proposal that we are making is that we need to create licenses uh, so that way human rights activists are protected from propaganda campaign that can target, that can compromise their bank accounts. So, for example, human rights uh, can be, again, labeled as, as such, and that way they are systematically protected. Uh, again, like a right to banking uh, kind, kind of thing. And the other thing that we had to do is that we had to right now protect the language of upcoming regulations regarding Bitcoin so that they have a neutral language. Because the problem is that right now in the Elizabeth Warren proposal, basically Bitcoin and criminality are like synonyms. This cannot be the case. We need to make sure that the, that the regulation says that Bitcoin is a technology and it's a neutral technology that can be used for good things and bad things. So we need to tackle when bad things happen. But to do that, there are other mechanisms. Countries have police, countries have investigation kind of bodies. We don't need to give police kind of capabilities to banks also. I think this is extremely also the, important. The bad things are the same exact things that would happen with fiat currency. Same, and, and in fact, most money laundering goes in plain sight through fiat currency. If you see all the statistics from their own financial institutions and fi governing bodies, each country has something called uh, FIU, Financial Intelligence Unit, and all their own reports basically say that the amount of money laundering that exists through Bitcoin, and I always want to mention Bitcoin, I, I don't mention a cryptocurrencies as a whole, because I cannot defend all cryptocurrencies. So I'm trying to defend Bitcoin because it's a technology that I know uh, basically is a rounding error compared to what it goes to traditional financial institutions. Something very similar that I try to also explain to regulators is that obviously every time there's a new technology, there are interest groups trying to destroy this new technology. And this happened over uh, 20 years ago over something called uh, voice over IP, uh, which is basically all Zoom, Skype, WhatsApp, all these things. The telecom companies were trying to say that voice over IP will have to be used by criminals sure. and all these things. And because of that, they wanted to basically over-regulate of voice over IP. The good thing is that the FCC basically regulate in favor of uh, technology, basically said that any regulation will stifle uh, innovation. Uh, so basically, I think it's a good parallelism uh, that we can do, that there are always going to be interest groups trying to 
uh, attack new technologies. And in this case, banks are competitors of Bitcoin. So of course they will have an interest in doing so. And you asked me about the proposals, and this reminds me of something. What I mentioned before are specific amendments or policy proposals, but there has to be also an institutional change in the way finance regulations are being created. And this is something that we were emphasizing a lot. If you create financial regulation and you don't have voices from other stakeholders, like civil society, like human rights defenders, or, in, or international kind of people, then your laws will always be biased towards uh, hyper experts, like people who are very into financial crime, but that they often overlook the unintended consequence. So when they create all these financial regulations, they always create it like in back channels, closed door, kind of a, if you see, for example, the hearings about financial regulations, all the people that are in the hearings are people from banks and you would never have a human right activist. So what we need is the, the incumbent monopolists exactly. are the ones trying to write the regulations to prevent competition. Exactly. And by definition, and I mean, you and I are academic people, we know that we need to have inclusive institutions, institutions that by design incorporate different stakeholders, because otherwise what you will have is the same that we have in authoritarian countries, which is extractive institution created by rent seekers or by people who have extended bias intentional or even non-intentional um, because i'm sure many people have the right intentions but they don't see what they don't know uh, so we need to by by default create a mechanism so that civil society is also involved in upcoming regulations and that's what we are asking for uh, we're asking for hearings we're asking for more roundtables like the one we did in the state department and we have been a bit successful in fact i was confirmed a couple of days ago that we will have a hearing at the italian congress on this issue so this is what we need to keep asking for. We need to advocate for change, and we need to be always involved in changes. Yeah. And we must stop, um, with all of our energies, central bank digital currency, yes. which is a modern monetary nightmare that can debank anyone at any moment at the control of government. Definitely. Look, I think for people like us that we have seen the effects of total like government power, because that's a problem in a place like Venezuela. Venezuela has a structural issue, which is that the state is too powerful. Why? Because it has oil. So the state is extremely powerful. So because of that, it's the political economy of the country always is tend, tilts towards authoritarianism and send a command economy kind of mentality. In the US, the US flourishes uh, because it has by design or by nature a ton of different people involved in processes and not too much power to government. But CBDCs is a shift from that. CBDCs gives too much power uh, to government. Uh, so it's, a, it's bad policy and we need to really, really fight against it. I want to talk about uh, where people can find more about your work and Alumni for Liberty. But let me ask you, do you have hope for Venezuela? Of course. This, it's gone on a long time. Maduro seems to be entrenched. I know. Do you have hope? I, I will answer your question by two different answers. Because one, I, I have hope, and that's why I'm fighting. Otherwise, I will be working on something else and not doing this. If I'm doing this, because I believe in it. At the same time, I'm not also a naive, idealistic person. I'm not somebody who is just naive. I'm somebody that understands that the situation is extremely difficult. And I'm somebody that is 
thinking that in order to free Venezuela, we have to really think outside the box. We need to throw everything away and we need to have a new strategy. Those two things can coexist. In Venezuela, I'm, I have hope uh, because I have hope on young people. And I, and I do believe that history, history is not in our favor, the way that Fukuyama used to think about it or in the 1990s kind of mentality. Actually, history gives a easier for authoritarian regimes. Uh, however, I do believe that we have the time, we have the people, we have the capabilities, we have the talent to make a change in Venezuela. And in my case, I'm committed to this. And the second part of my answer is that, but we need to think about new ways to do it. It's not through traditional ways, it's not through traditional leadership, and it's not through what the leadership has been doing in years. And um, is easy? No. But we need to keep fighting. And if other countries have been able to change and other countries have been able to become democracies, miracles can happen. Uh, so in my case, I'm hopefully hopeful and at the same time realistic about the things that we have to do. Okay, uh, let's talk about alumni's, alum, alumni for liberty. Is, are there regular gatherings? I mean, I've been to Students for Liberty many times. Uh, tell, me, tell me the program. Yes, yeah, so basically, as you know, Students for Liberty has been uh, 13 years in existence, a bit more than that. And basically something that we realized was the need to have a proper alumni uh, organization. Uh, so a couple, of, uh, a couple of years ago, we started thinking about it. We started thinking about how to develop alumni for liberty, what to do, how to organize it. And we started picking up a lot And last year. Uh, basically, we have, again, 10,000 members in over 100 countries. And we have roughly 1,000 members out of that uh, active uh, in the network. What we are doing is that we are creating a leadership pathway for alumni to become leaders of society in policy, in advocacy, in academia, all these different things. To do this, we have a specific programs, like we have a partnership with alumni, uh, we have a capaci capacity programs, we have this kind of training kind of programs, mentorship programs, all these things. And at the same time, what we want to create is a spaces of for cooperation and collaboration. We want to have, uh, we have, for example, policy dialogues and we have policy roundtables in many countries. Last year, we did what we call policy roundtables, which is that all the alumni come together for an entire day. Also, a few external people like policymakers or business people, academics, they come together and they discuss for an entire day what program or what project they can create in their own community. And we have been doing this from major capitals like Brussels, Madrid, Washington, New York, but we have also done it in very in developing countries, uh, like for example, Burundi, uh, Venezuela, South Africa, Ghana, all these different things, uh, Nigeria. So we have done a few of these. We are doing also retreats, uh, what we call policy summits, which is three, four days. We come together to a location and we discuss these things. And basically part of this is with the, the idea that I mentioned to you, that I want to do a policy summit uh, on, we can call it a, a financial freedom, or we can call it financial inclusion or something like this. So we discuss about all the issues uh, that we talked today. Uh, but yeah, but we have different programs. We're bringing the alumni network together because we have tremendous potential. We have alumni who are working like elected officials, academics, journalists. So my job and what I want to do with my team is that we want to bring them together and eventually, the same way that you attended LibertyCon uh, two weeks ago, what my vision is that in a year or maybe even sooner, we can have a global alumni summit. Uh, we call it Liberty Summit or something like this, in which we come together 
And we don't come to listen to panels. No, no, no. I want them to come and to divide ourselves in working groups. Each working group has like a specific initiative. So imagine like one working group on, on this issue, another working group on the issue of property rights in Latin America, another working group on the issue of, I don't know, diplomatic agenda, another working group on people who want to be political uh, candidates. And that's where we can organize ourselves one time every year and we can have an agenda uh, for the year. Something that, for example, you and I were talking, I want to mention this, is that we need new ideas in our movement. I believe it. I think we need new ideas, bold ideas, bold initiatives, because if we're doing the things that we always do, then no change, no change will come. Because our enemies, they're all the time innovating. They're innovating in ways that they can uh, prevent us from for being free. Uh, so that's something that I want to do. And everybody who is uh, also uh, hearing us and watching us, uh, and you want to also contribute your ideas, you can find me on social media, you can find my email. I'm sure you will put my social media on the YouTube, things like this. So give, it, give us your, your X account. I'm trying not to call it Twitter anymore. <laughs> right. So my X account is Jarisati Jorge. Uh, my, my last name is a bit difficult to, to spell. I didn't even try. <laughs> so it's J-R-A-I-S-S-A-T-I, -S -S Jorge, which is J-O-R-G-E. And uh, yes, my family is Lebanese. So I have this uh, very difficult to expel. Last and we will have you back. Um, I'll give you 24 months to pull this off, but I want to hear about an army of 100s, thousands of, of young Javier Miles. Exactly. All over the world. That's what we need. All over the world. We need people that can take ideas and put them into action. And we need to also gather people who do not believe like we believe and find ways that they start believing in what we believe, which is what Millet has done. What Millet has done in, in Argentina is a miracle. Young people that they are believe and they love the ideas of freedom. And that's what we need. We need to stop, stop talking to ourselves all the time. And we need to go to the other side. And we need to go into politics. And we need to go into policy. We need to go into advocacy, which are difficult places. For me, talking to 20 senators was not pleasant. <laughs> it was a repetition of many things. But if I don't do it, like who's going to do it? So uh, I, you give me 24 months. <laughs> I hope you also give me, uh, I, I will ask for advice at the same time. And, but uh, that's my, my intention. Like I imagine myself an alumni for liberty in 24 months, again, having a program called Candidates for Liberty or something like this. And we bring together 20 people who want to be future Millets. And we provide them training and we provide them opportunities. And that's the way to make changes. So yeah, give me 24 months and come back and we do it. Beautiful. Make it happen. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to you. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video subscribe and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.